Okay, we're going to be picking up at the second in our new series, Hear My Voice. This is a series from the book of Malachi. We believe that God speaks today. And this book that's the last book in our uh, Old Testament uh, is a book where God speaks. And so uh, we're going to look at the whole topic of God speaking about his love. And we're going to read some verses from Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. They're going to come up on the screen behind me. And uh, this is what they say. An oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, and I have turned this, his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom, Edom is uh, another name for the people who came, the descendants of Esau, Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of God. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord even beyond the borders of Israel. So today is, as I said, it's the second uh, in this series. Uh, In this short book, as we said last week, just 55 verses, about 85% of those verses are the direct voice of God speaking to his people. Israel had only just recently returned uh, after 70 years in exile. They had been uh, uh, sent away. They'd been taken into exile. Now they've they've come back and they're in uh, their land, the land that God had promised to them. They're in uh, Jerusalem. Jerusalem has, the walls have been rebuilt. The temple has been rebuilt, but it's, it's not quite as it was before. It's a little disappointing. And so the people are feeling discouraged. And uh, you see, the situation them being taken into exile could have all been avoided if they'd listened to God in the first place. Their wayward hearts kept pulling them away, and they went, they turned their back on God, and they ended up for 70 years away. But God, in his mercy, brings them back, draws them back, has spoken to them that it's going to happen, and he brings them back to the land that he's promised. And what God says to them in these few verses is both encouraging and challenging. And it's encouraging and challenging to us here this morning. To understand what God is saying, we're going to need to unpack the language that he's using. You know, sometimes words imply different things to different people. Now, uh, I'm, I want you to imagine uh, you have an 18-year-old son, and they come home, they do their driving test, and they walk through the door, and they say, how did it go? And they say these words, I smashed it. <laughs> Internally, as, uh, as a dad of, uh, who's not of that generation, I'm immediately going, oh, no, I've got to phone the insurer. It's going to cost me loads of money. Oh, no. What did you smash? How did it happen? No, 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 Dad, I smashed it. How, what, what? Language... It's important. People use language in different ways and they mean different things to different generations. And what we've read this morning, I think, is a little example of that. You see, sometimes people read the verses that we've just read. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, and it makes them cross. They get cross. They get cross 
with God. And so they either ignore what God says or they choose to ignore God. Their argument is, why would anyone want to worship a God who says he's a God of love and yet says he randomly hates some people? I thought God was supposed to be just and fair. In the New King James Version of the Bible, the opening verse is translated as this, the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Actually, that's probably a good translation. It's a burden, actually, because what Malachi says is really weighty and it's heavy and it's, uh, it isn't easily understandable. And it's heavy and it's a burden because some won't want to hear it. Passages like this are challenging. One approach is to avoid them. My son, when he was he struggled with his speech, there were moments when he would be asked to read out in class. He would read something and he would know there was a word that he wasn't going to be able to say or some words he wasn't going to be able to say. So he would just miss them out. He would start reading and then he would just miss the words out and everyone in the class would be like, what's going on there? But he would just carry on and pretend it was normal and no one called him on it. I could do that this morning. It would be really easy to go, well, we're just going to focus on this And we're going to miss the rest out, the difficult bit out. However tempting, we're not going to do that. I want to encourage you this morning as we we unpack this passage to set aside prejudices about what you think God is actually, uh, about what you think God is saying. And I want you to hear what God is actually saying. You see, so, so often we get upset. I hear people get upset. They say, oh, so-and-so said this and, and they, they, they did this. And you ask them the question, well, what did they say? Well, and what did they mean by that? Well, I think they meant this. I think it's not good enough. When we get upset over what we think someone says, but without ever finding out, we end up in trouble. God doesn't want us to do that this morning. You see, when we listen to words like, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, it's easy to lose sight of what God is saying. You see, in the day that this was written, that sort of saying was was known as a, a hyperbole. And a hyperbole is a way of stressing something. It was, it was a way of saying that, uh, that something was more important than something else. Jesus used that approach. He said anyone who followed him, anyone who followed him had to hate their parents. Did he mean that? Did he mean you, that, they, that to follow Jesus you had to hate your parents? No, actually, Jesus uh, talks on lots of occasions about us honoring our parents and loving our parents. The point he's making is a hyperbole. What he's saying is you need to, the point is you need to love him so much more than anyone or anything else. God demands that love from us because he is our creator and the God who formed us. It's a hyperbole. You see, Jonathan does it all the time. He says, sometimes he uses this phrase. He says, I'm so hungry I could eat a scabby horse. That's what he said. I've heard him say it many times. I'm so hungry I could eat a scabby horse. Does he really mean he's going to eat a scabby horse? 
Well, you better make sure you know before you go around for dinner with him. You really better make sure. Hyperboles are not always meant to be taken literally. And so we're going to consider what's behind what God is saying later. And so with that in mind, let's uh, just start to unpack this passage. And the first thing I want to draw out is this. God loves us. I have loved you, says the Lord. I have loved you, says the Lord. What comes out of our mouths is what's in our heart. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 12, verse 34. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so uh, often the first thing that comes out of our mouths expresses what's in our hearts. So you imagine you've been away for a week and you, you come home and uh, you walk through the door. What's the first thing that comes out of your mouth as you see your partner? You say, is it, I've really missed you. It's great to see you. Or is it, what's for dinner? Or worse, is it, do you know what the score was? I can tell you if you've tried the latter two, it's going to be a long, cold, chilly evening. Because what comes out of our hearts, express, uh, out of our mouths, expresses what's in our heart. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, you can be aware of others' love to you by the actions of that person, but what love craves for always is a personal statement. It's great when people do things for you and demonstrate love for you, but there's nothing like a personal statement, I love you. And right at the beginning of Malachi. Malachi, God has got lots of things he wants to say to his people. There's lots of things that are not right. There are lots of things he wants to challenge them about. But the first thing that comes out of the mouth of God, it comes from the heart of God is, I love you. I want you to know that I love you. It's the same in Jesus is going to speak to seven churches in Asia in the book of Revelation in the first few chapters. Jesus is going to speak to them and he's going to say some tough stuff to some of those churches. And John, who is Jesus' mouthpiece, is writing down what he's, uh, uh, God is telling him by his spirit. He says to the, John says to the churches, right at the very beginning, he says this, he says, He says that Jesus loves us and has freed us from our sins. He wants them to know before anything else, before Jesus says anything else, Jesus loves us. Do you know that God loves you? Do you know that God loves you? You see, none of us here are perfect. And over the coming weeks, God's going to speak to us as a church and individually, maybe about lots of issues as we unpack the book of Malachi. But before anything else God wants you to hear this morning, hear his heart. He loves you. He loves you. The God of heaven loves you. You see, we need to know his love for us is unshakable. The Hebrew for uh, the phrase is really, I have loved you in the past and I still do. God's love is unshakable. It goes on and on. The Bible tells us that God is love. And Malachi says later that God says, I, the Lord, don't change. 
God's love goes on and on. It never changes. Whatever the circumstances, however bad they may seem, whenever things are going wrong, God still loves us. In the book of Lamentations, it's a lament. It's a, uh, it's a book written by probably by Jeremiah. It's a, a, of almost like poetry, songs of despair of what, because everything's gone wrong. And in the midst of it, there's one thread that runs through it. It's a, a thread that comes out in Lamentations chapter 3. In the midst of despair, the writer says this, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness in the midst of despair. I want to tell you, yesterday, my 46-year-old cousin, day before yesterday, dropped dead. 46 years old. Took the call yesterday morning. In the midst of when everything's going wrong, Great is your faithfulness. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. How can we lift our hands? How can we sing songs like, Blessed be your name, because he is God and he loves us? Is it not true? Whatever is happening, our focus is to be the immovable rock that is God's love for us. John reminds us, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the rock on which we stand. We're going to be remembering Jesus' death for us a little later this morning. This is always true. Always true. Have you lost sight of God's unshakable love for you? Maybe you need to do freedom in Christ. Maybe you need to remind yourself of God's love for you. I was reading this this week. I want you to listen to this. This is a quote by someone called Peter Adam. How amazing it is that when we are asked how we are, we naturally answer in terms of human well-being, health, happiness, human relationships, contentment, wealth, and the welfare of our environment and society. We neglect the biggest issue, which is how we are with God. And the most important aspect of that issue, which is not how we feel about God, but what God feels about us. How amazing that though we know we're not the center of the universe, we feel, think, relate, and act as if we are. Our self-centeredness blinds us to God. God last, rather than God first, is our effective motto. Do you know how God feels about you? Do you know it? Do you know that he loves you? Do you know his love never changes? It's a steadfast love. His love for us is more than just unshakable. It's unconditional. So a couple of weeks ago of the summer, my son... uh, got married, married uh, Lauren, they got married in Canterbury, and uh, Annie and I were at the wedding, and I, I got the privilege of actually doing the service. And um, I wanted to say, right at the very beginning, because actually the, the place they would get married, there was no uh, registrar there, so they had to legally get married. So they got married, uh, the civil bit of the service was done on the Wednesday. 
And uh, for them, that wasn't the real wedding. But for loads of people there, they wondered, what on earth is going on? But you're already legally married. And so I talked about the difference between a contract and a covenant. What they'd entered was a legal contract that was, uh, that was dissolvable only in law. So in law, they were married. But that was a contract. A marriage is a covenant. A covenant is so much more than a contract. A covenant is something that you make. It's a one-sided declaration. You're not doing it on the basis of contract. It's if you do this for me, I'll do that for you. A covenant is I will do that for you irrespective of what you do for me. That's exactly what they're doing. When you're making marriage vows, you're saying, I will love you forever. In sickness and in health. Not dependent on whether you love me back. It's a covenant. And God's love for us is a covenant love. He promises to love us whatever because of Christ. It's not based on our performance. It's not based on how we do. It's not based on how well we behave. These people had experienced something of that. They'd gone into exile because they'd rebelled and God engineers a way for them to come back. He actually says in 70 years you'll come back and they come back and they experience the kindness and the mercy and the love of God and they they get back and uh, they know they've refused to listen previously. God has taken his hand of protection off them and they've, they've gone into exile. They've known all of that. And they, they come back. And they start to experience, they're aware again of God's amazing love for them. They must have been aware, but suddenly over the weeks and months, it starts to dissipate. Their love for God, their passion for God starts to dissipate. It's a bit like a morning mist on a summer's day. Slowly, bit by bit, the heat rises and the disappears. And before long, they're back, to their old, back into their old habits. To a people like that, God says, I love you. When you get it wrong, when you mess up, when you miss it, God says, I love you because of Christ. You see, it's not about your performance. It's about his performance for you. Jesus Christ went to the cross, and when he went to the cross, he dealt with the issue that keeps us from God, our rebellion, our wrongdoing, our sin, everything that keeps us out of the presence of a holy God. God can't turn his back on on our wrongdoing. He's a holy God. He's a loving God, but he's holy as well. He's not one or the other. He's always loving, and he's always holy, and so He has to deal with our sin, and our sin is intrinsically part of us, and so it has to be dealt with. And so God, in his great love, sent his son across the cosmos to this sin-sick world. Jesus is born and lives a perfect life. And by the will of God, he goes to a cross where he's hung on a cross for not doing anything wrong by the wickedness of men. And on that cross, God punishes his sinless son for our wrongdoing, our sin. And in that moment, the gates of heaven are thrown open wide as Jesus is raised from the dead. We are able to have a relationship when we put our trust in Jesus Christ. It's about his performance. It's not about ours. 
His love is unconditional. His love for us is more than unconditional. It's immeasurable. How deep is the Father's love for us? He gave his only beloved son for us. Can we grasp the wonder of it? This is what Paul prays for the Ephesian believers. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. God wants us to grasp, wants us to delve into how great his love for us is, how wide it is. God's love is broad. In the book of Revelation, it says that uh, heaven will be full of people from every tribe, language, and people, and nation. They'll all be worshipping God together. We'll be worshipping with them. God has no favourites. All have received the grace of God, are equally loved and valued by God. If we grasp how wide God's love is, we will be the most genuinely welcoming and loving church. Because all are welcome. All are welcome. You see... God's people were always intended to be a witness to the nations around, a light to the peoples around, that they may see the love and the grace of God. Always intended that to be. All are welcome to worship with us. God's love is wide. God's love is long. God wants us to know the endless nature of his love. That's what Paul is talking about. We hear this phrase regularly, I don't love you anymore. I don't love you anymore. Maybe some of you have been hurt by words like that, don't love you anymore. There are moments when we've all felt a bit of that pain, but some of you more keenly than others. I want to tell you that God's love for you never ends. God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. God says, he chose us in Christ before the creation of the world and loved us. That's what he says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. He wanted us. I tell you, he wanted us. The God of heaven wanted us. He sought us out. Jesus came to seek and save the lost, we're told. How amazing is that? Each one of us is important to God. We should hold our heads high with dignity. His love goes on forever. It never lets go. And knowing that enables us to press through when stuff gets tough in this life. When we have bad news, when relationships don't work out, when family's tough, when church, you find church hard and work difficult, in response to this, we should be delving into God's great love for us. God's love is long. God's love is high. How great is the love of God Uh, Love God has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. We are children of God. We are co-heirs with Christ. That's what we're told. Co-heirs with Christ. God's son, we're co-heirs with him. What he inherits, we inherit because of him. We are, the Bible says, we're seated with him in heavenly places. 
Not literally, but spiritually. We're seated. We have authority because we are in Christ. We've given our lives to Jesus Christ. God's love is high. He, we have access into God's presence. God hears our prayers. That's why we're going to be praying uh, uh, over the prayer week. We're praying because we're going to be praying before the prayer week because God hears our prayers. We come into God's presence. He hears us. This is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. He hears us. And we know that if he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. When we are praying by the Holy Spirit and we pray in line with God's will, God answers our prayers. Maybe not in the way we expected because he's God. But he's a God who answers prayer. He's a God who speaks. He's a God who speaks today. God's love is high. God's love is deep. Jesus left the heights of heaven and came down to the depths of this earth. He went down to the grave, the depths of the grave for us. God's son did that for you. How many of us have felt we are beyond the pale? We're beyond help. God can't do anything with us. Jesus went to the depths, to the lowest for us. He went so deep, no one could go deeper. And then God raised him from the dead. And because of Christ, and because Christ is risen from the dead, and for no other reason, we are rescued. We're redeemed. We're saved. We're restored to relationship with God. However far you feel that you have fallen, Whatever you've done, however low you feel, God's love goes deeper. No one is beyond his grace. We should be people who appreciate the wonders of God's great love for us every time we're together. As we hear God's word unpacked, we're gonna, you'll see new vistas. I hope you've seen some already this morning. It's like a, God's love is like a prism. And when the Holy Spirit, the light of the Spirit shines on a prism, what comes out the other side? It's a multi-spectrum of color and diversity. You can read, that's why you can read a passage of Scripture, a verse of Scripture. You can read it every day for a week. And every day you can see something different about God's love. When we're unpacking the Word of God together, God reveals some of his, what, it, what it means for him to love us. When we worship, as we sing together, as we sing truth together, God comes and reveals something of his love to us. Did you not experience that this morning? Something of the love of God? It can happen as we serve together can happen as we pray together. I love praying with other people. When you pray with other people, they suddenly pray into a scripture or pray something that spurs you and stirs you to see. Have you had moments when you're praying and someone prays something and you go, oh, wow, that's amazing. God is like that. As we are together worshiping God, whether it be over a meal, talking about the goodness of God, we can have a fresh revelation of his love. It can happen anywhere, wherever we are. God's love is amazing. The sad thing is, is that the people God speaks to are not convinced. And they ask the question, how have you loved us? God says, I've loved you. They say, how? How have you loved us? We've all done it. 
If God loves me, why are things like that happening? Why did that happen? If God loves me, why did that happen? Malachi wants you to understand this, the second thing. God has a plan. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. It's never easy to understand a verse like this. D.A. Carson has written a book called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. It's just a little book. The title tells you a lot about it. Tells you, actually, there are some difficult issues around this, about the love of God. And a lot of them are caused by the culture of the world we live in and what we understand about love, our wrong understanding of love. You see, we need to know that undergirding God's unconditional love is a plan. God is not random. The people Malachi spoke to, immediately they understood what he was saying. When Malachi talked about Esau and Jacob, they understood that they were brothers. They knew that they were twins. They knew their story. It was part of their history. So we need to grasp a little bit about it if we're going to understand what's going on. You see, Jacob and Esau's mother had experienced as she was pregnant, there's lots of jostling going on in her womb. The babies are moving around. In fact, she doesn't even know it's twins, I don't think, at the time. And there's all sorts of commotion and they're they're jostling. And so she asks God, God, what's, what's happening? And God says to her this, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other. The older will serve the younger. God speaks to her in a moment tells her there's twins and actually the younger one will serve the older see in the day the rights and blessing always went with the older son that was the human wisdom of the day God throws convention on its head I don't believe that God was saying that he loved Jacob and hated Esau before they were born What he was saying was, I have a plan and I'm not having anything to do with human wisdom. I'm going to turn it on its head. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 20, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? God hates the wisdom of this world which stands opposed to him. And so he turns things on his head and it's always been that way. So God had chosen Abraham, their grandfather from He'd, he was part of, his family were moon worshippers in Ur of the Chaldees. And God calls him and calls him to leave and come out. And he says to him, he makes great and precious promises that we read in Genesis chapter 12, the first three verses, that he's going to make him, his descendants, into a, a, a nation, a great nation. And all peoples of the earth will see light through. And there's going to be a breakthrough. God's going to do something through Abraham and Abraham's descendants. And yet God makes it clear straight away that it's not going to be the way that Abraham thinks it's going to be. And so Abraham and his wife, his wife is old. She can't have children. He's an old man. How's this going to happen? So his wife says, well, it must be through my servant. Hagar, so he, she gives him a, a servant, going, they have a child, Ishmael. And God says, no, it's not going to be that way. You are not gonna, you're not going to work your way through this. Your wife Sarah is going to have a child. 
How can that happen? She's 90 years old. And then there's a miracle. And Isaac is born. Isaac is Jacob and Esau's father. God turns human wisdom on its head. You see, God, when God chose Jacob ahead of Esau, he followed the same pattern. God's plan of salvation won't be tainted by human interference and human endeavor. God chose Jacob ahead of Esau before either of them had done anything good or evil. Was Jacob more noble in character than Esau? Well, you read about them as they're growing up. Esau, we're told Esau was immoral and godless in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 16 and 17. We're told he despised his birthright and sold it to his brother for a bowl of red stew because he was starving. Not an impressive character. But Jacob, whose name means he deceives, lived up to his name. He was manipulative, he was calculating, he was a con merchant. Yet behind it all, God was working out his plan. God gave them both opportunities to turn to him. Jacob was open to God and has an encounter with God. And you can read about it in Genesis 32. You read about how this crook, this deceiver, has an encounter with God and God deals with him. One night where he meets God and God deals with him and changes his heart. And he's a changed man. He's no longer Jacob. He becomes a man who wrestles with God. Israel, he changes his name. Esau has everything. Go from Esau. Jacob has gone away and come back, and Esau is a wealthy man. He's got everything. God's actually blessed him. He's every good, how, do you, how many of you know that every good thing you have is from God anyway? That's what James tells us. Esau's been blessed by God, but he won't acknowledge God. There's no evidence that Esau ever responded to the kindness and goodness of God to him by personally turning to him. No evidence. The Bible says that he was godless. He had every opportunity, every opportunity, never received the grace of God. What about you? What about you? What about you? You see, Jacob and Esau became the heads of large families. They had large families of themselves. Both their family lives became nations in time. Israel and Edom, respectively. The people of Edom uh, were, uh, were followers of Esau. And Edom uh, means red. Their name simply means, remind, it's a reminder that Esau sold his inheritance for a pot of, bowl of red stew. Gave it all away for a bowl of red stew. Actually, God was behind it, but Esau despised his birthright. And the people, his descendants, are named after that incident. Jacob, his people are called Israel. Named after, after the moment he's had an encounter with God. He struggles with God. There are people who struggle with God. They didn't get it all right. They messed up on many occasions. But God loved them. You see... Esau's descendants held on to their grudge against their relatives. We read that in in Ezekiel chapter 35. Their hatred showed in their anger and jealousy towards Israel. And they sought to destroy them. They sought to take back what they thought was theirs all the time. 
we're going to have their inheritance. God says, oh no, you won't. Oh no, you won't. Fighting against God never works. God hates our sin and hates our rebelliousness. If we will not hear his voice and change direction, he will not ignore it. The Bible says he opposes the proud. Malachi's warning is that those who follow Esau and his descendants who will not submit their lives to God, will not put their trust in Christ, ultimately face the wrath of God and destruction. That's what the Bible says. God hates sin. Malachi's reminder is that about Jacob, and it points us to the love of God, the great love of God and our great need of grace. We're in the line of promise. And if you're not this morning, you can be in the line of promise. You are here listening to the grace of God and you can respond to it and give your life to Christ. You can be part of this great line of grace. Listen to what Hebrews says. So God has given both, has given both his promise and his oath. God has given a promise and an oath. These two things are unchangeable because it's impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. What is that hope? This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary, into God's presence. Jesus has gone in there ahead of us, gone there in there for us. He has become our eternal high priest. Jesus has made a way for us to draw near to God. That is the promise. How amazing is that? God has demonstrated his great love for us. God has made a way for us to draw near to God and receive his love. Most of us have got a wrong view of what love is. Tim Keller and his wife Kathy have written a book, The Meaning of Marriage. And one of the things he says is, he says, when people say to him, I love the person I'm about to marry, he says, you don't love them. You don't even understand what love is. And the point he's making is this, you may like them and you may feel drawn to them, but love comes through a growing, burgeoning relationship over, uh, as you get to know and understand what someone is like. You don't really love someone in that moment. You think you do, but you don't. He says of himself, he says, my wife Kathy's been married, uh, been married to five men and they're all me. Because he's changed so much over the years, God has dealt with him. And the point is this, is that love, our understanding of love is based on, for most, uh, most parts, based on the values of this world. God's love is so much deeper than that. And God wants us to know his love and we need to draw near. We need to understand, receive of his love. We need to grow in his love to know the depth and the height and the breadth of it. We have a wrong view of God's love. Malachi reminds us of a proper view. You see, God's love should cause us to cry out and see what we've been saved from and cry out that God is great. God's love is not toothless. It's fierce. It always protects. Love never fails. When we see the depth of his love for us, it should cause us to tremble before his greatness. This is what one hymn writer 
said, loved with everlasting love, led by grace, that love to know. Spirit breathing from above, you have taught me it is so. Oh, what full and perfect peace. Oh, what transport, oh, divine. In a love that cannot cease, I am his and he is mine. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. When we break bread, when we take bread and wine, maybe the musicians will come and and join me. But when we take bread and when we take wine, we remember God's great love for us, demonstrated at the cross. That is the greatest demonstration of the love of God. God wants each one of us to know that he loves us. And if you've never given your life to Christ, he wants you to draw near and receive of his love. Receive forgiveness. Receive cleansing. Know what it is to have peace with God. God wants us in this moment to know that if you're carrying burdens and struggles and you've been battling against stuff, he wants you to know that you can come and take bread and wine and you can be restored to relationship. As you worship God and thank him for Christ and what Christ has done, you are relying on what Christ has done, not on your efforts. That's why we remember Jesus as we break bread. This is what Carson says in his book, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. This is what he says, and we'll finish with this. Do you wish to see God's love? Look at the cross. Do you wish to see God's wrath? Look at the cross. As we come to the cross, we realize what we are saved from and what we are saved into. It's a glorious moment. It should cause us to come with respect, tremble, but joy in our hearts that God has rescued us. Well, that's what we're going to do. We're going to break bread in a moment. The band are going to lead us. They're going to play quietly behind. But I want you to come in this moment. Take bread and wine. Maybe you want to deal with God yourself. You want to have some moments by yourself. Maybe you want to pray with one of your friends, someone you're next to. Maybe you've never given your life to Christ. This can be your moment. As you take bread and as you take wine, you can say, Jesus, your body was broken for me. You died on the cross for me. I believe that. Don't understand it all, but I believe it. As I take this bread, I thank you that your body was given for me. As I drink this wine, this juice, as I drink it, I remember your blood was shed for me. My sin is forgiven. I can now draw near to you as my Father. God, thank you for your great love for me. You can do that right now. Let's take this moment to worship God, thank him, to bask in the love of God for us.